Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been, over the last several weeks, looking at places in the Gospels uh, where folks argue with Jesus. Uh, we're doing that in order to see what is important to Jesus, to see how he argues, and uh, to see how he treats people that are disagreeing with him. Uh, in a deeply polarized culture, we're trying to learn from Jesus what it looks like to disagree uh, with love. So last week we looked at Jesus arguing with a friend, and we're going to do that again this week. I'm going to read from Mark 8, verses 31 through 33 for us. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, as we always do, that you would be happy to meet us, that you would use this word uh, that we've read together, that we've heard together, that we're going to talk about for a few minutes together, um, to lead us to the word that bears our flesh, um, to the one who is seated right beside you now, praying for people like us. Show us his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, 2019 book, Talking to Strangers, uh, is, just like the title says, an exploration of how we talk with people that we don't know. In particular, in the book, Gladwell wants to explore how uh, conflict and misunderstanding can often happen uh, when we talk to strangers. Now, <clears throat> I will admit to you right now, I haven't read the book. Maybe some of you have. Um, but I did read uh, Andrew Ferguson's review of the book in The Atlantic, and he was not a big fan of it. Uh, in fact, he went so far as to say that perhaps after 20 years of writing, the Gladwell formula is exhausted. Um, so I will let those two uh, very able writers and thinkers fight that out if they want to. Um, I just want to point out that the thing that stuck out to me in that review uh, was the reason that Ferguson was so frustrated with the book. Uh, he says that he was frustrated because he was looking for answers from Gladwell on a topic that seems incredibly timely and important. He was looking for answers on how we talk and interact with others, and particularly those that we disagree with. And so here's what Ferguson wrote. He wrote, if there is one thing that cultural critics have agreed to complain about, it is that the big sort is nearly complete. And we have all retreated into our own socioeconomic and cultural bubbles where exposure to people who think and act differently from us can be strictly controlled and rationed. And then he adds, I think for comic effect, at least that's the complaint in my bubble. I can't speak for yours. You know, he is no doubt right about that. Uh, you, you and I can see this almost anywhere we look, about almost any subject you can think of, public policy, religion, art, food, economics, law, you name it. 
You have to look pretty hard, I think, to find people who are speaking about these things or writing about these things graciously and with a desire not only uh, to be heard, but just as importantly, with a desire to hear. Social science sometimes uh, chalks up this retreating into our own bubbles uh, to confirmation bias or to motivated reasoning. Um, One of my favorite images for this retreat um, comes from the writer Julie Beck. She says it's building a pillow fort of the information that we are comfortable with. My mom uh, put it very succinctly many times in my life. She would say to me, Aaron, you only see what you want to see. And of course, this is at the heart of the argument that Peter and Jesus have in the story that we just read together. Jesus says something to Peter that strikes at the heart of Peter's view of himself and Peter's view of the world. I mean, if what Jesus says is true, then it upends most of what Peter thought was true about God and the world. And so he comes unglued. And he pulls Jesus aside and he reads him the riot act. And Jesus' response to Peter is meant to shake the fundamental orientation of Peter's whole life. He burns Peter's little pillow fort down. And it is a great and remarkable grace. (laughs) And it's one that you and I need too. So Mark begins this story by saying that Jesus began to teach them. Now, of course, Jesus had already taught the disciples lots, but this marks a new beginning in his relationship to the disciples, and it's one that we can't really make any sense out of unless we know what's come right before it. Um, And and maybe moments, maybe hours uh, before this, this is what's happened. Peter has just told Jesus that he knows who Jesus really is. We call it Peter's uh, confession. He says, Jesus, I know you're not just a king, you're the king. You're, you're the Messiah. And uh, in response, Jesus had commended Peter. He says, you're the rock, and I'm going to build my church starting with you. That's not bad at all for a fisherman from Galilee. These are incredibly heady moments for Peter. And that's why I'm sure that in a million years, he would have never guessed that his confession would be a trigger for Jesus to begin teaching them something so scandalously different than what he expected. But there it is. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. (laughs) Absolutely zero of the words that Jesus just spoke make any sense at all to Peter. It does not fit into Peter's story of God and the world. This is not what is supposed to happen to the king. This is not what is supposed to happen to the Messiah. And by extension, I'm certain that Peter is thinking to himself that all of the stuff that Jesus just talked about is not what he signed up for either. 
You know, he's thinking to himself, Jesus, right now (laughs) we're supposed to plan this march into Jerusalem. And then as we get there, we're going to gather followers around us. And then when we get into the city, you're going to help us retake the temple from the corrupt establishment. And somehow we're going to overthrow the Romans. Jesus, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem to win, not to lose. You're supposed to go to put down your enemies, not to be put down by them. What in the world, Jesus, is all this stuff about suffering and dying? There's no room in Peter's world for a Messiah who suffers and dies. These things, they strike at the heart of Peter's own identity. And these things threaten Peter. So if we're being honest, what he does is no surprise at all to us. He begins to defend himself. And I think he thinks he's defending Jesus from the threat. I think this is why we see so much polarization and anger and fear around disagreement in our culture, in our world. I mean, it's because we have somehow come to the place where disagreement is not for us a chance um, to hear someone else's perspective. Disagreement is, is not a chance for us to maybe learn something. Disagreement is not an opportunity for us to maybe figure out if we're wrong. We have come to the place where disagreement feels like a threat. And our first impulse at a threat is to feel backed into a corner and to bare our claws and to lash out. And this is, of course, fueled by leaders in our world who play on our fear. Fear, it is a great mechanism of control. It also happens to be soul-sucking and joy-killing and life-killing. But it does get things done. And so Peter hears this thread and his vision becomes narrowed and his heart starts to grow cold with fear and his lips get wet with frustration and anger and we know what he does. He takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter says to him, this will never happen to you, Jesus. Never. And so Peter has brought the fight to Jesus. (laughs) And so the question that we have to ask is the question we've asked almost every week. What is the most important thing to Jesus in this moment? What matters most to Jesus right now? I mean, if it was to be right, if it was just making sure that everybody knew he was right, he surely could have explained to Peter how he was right. If it was to suppress dissent, then he surely could have dismissed Peter in a moment. But of course, what matters most to Jesus in that moment is Peter. Peter's good, his understanding, his growth, his maturity, his flourishing. And so Jesus' response is a cold, sharp splash meant to wake Peter up. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, 
uh, but on the things of man. So I think it's helpful here to remember a story from earlier in Jesus' life. It's the story of his temptation in the wilderness. You should read about it this afternoon in Matthew 4. In the last of those temptations, here's what happens. The accuser takes Jesus to a high place. He shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. He says, Jesus, look, you, you can have all of this if you just would bow down and worship me. In other words, he was tempting Jesus to come into his kingdom without suffering and without a cross. But Jesus knows even then that there is no coming into his kingdom without the cross. The cross is the plan. It's his plan. And so with authority, he tells the accuser to go away, and he does. And this is, I think, what's happening here with Peter. I think that's why Jesus calls him Satan, because Peter, too, wants Jesus to come into his kingdom without suffering. He wants Jesus to come into his kingdom without a cross. But church, don't be mistaken. Jesus does not tell Peter to be gone. Instead, he is all of grace with him. He says, get behind me. He doesn't say, look, Peter, you're dismissed. He doesn't say, don't ever let me see your face again. He doesn't say, how can you be so short-sighted and dumb? He says, get behind me. Follow me again, Peter. Get, get in line behind me where you were to learn from me. You won't learn all at once. You'll learn slowly over time. <laughs> But if you follow me, if you continue to learn from me, you will learn what it looks like to have your mind set on the things of God. I mean, Jesus doesn't want to confirm Peter's bias here. It would be terrible for Peter if he did. He wants to give him an entirely new one, the true one. He wants Peter to learn, to begin to learn again (laughs) the true story of the world. And at the heart, of the true story of the world is a scandal and a mystery. (laughs) We heard it expressed in our Old Testament lesson this morning. That scandal, that mystery is with his wounds we are healed. You and I and the whole world, we are made new again through the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is his love for people like us. Peter doesn't see that now. And honestly, it takes Peter a really long time to figure it out. He needs to get behind Jesus. (laughs) He needs to keep learning from him, keep listening, keep maturing. And eventually he does understand. And he tells the young church, like we heard in the New Testament lesson this morning, you know, don't be surprised when there's suffering. In fact, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I mean, that's a change in perspective. It's a big one from that moment out on the road. 
But church, to follow Jesus is to always have the fundamental orientations of our lives be challenged and changed by him. And to faithfully follow Jesus is also to have our fears and defensiveness and anger be weakened because we know the story in which we are living, because we, as we follow him, learn it more. We begin to see the patterns of it everywhere, the contours of the true story of the world. We, we see them everywhere. We begin to learn its language of love. And those things like fear and defensiveness and anger, they're weakened. And this is a great and remarkable grace. And so, church, my hope is that we, um, as individuals, we as a church, would be not only open to having Jesus argue with us, but that we'll listen when he does. This would lead us into our own maturity, into our own growth in the faith, and through us, it would lead to the building of his peaceable and just and gracious kingdom for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, make us a people in whatever way you need to who are happy to be behind you learning from your son. Learning and listening, walking into this story of the world of which we are a part, at which the, the self-giving love of your son is at the heart. Father, help us to learn it, help us to believe it, certainly for our own good, that we would grow up, that we would mature in our own faith, but also, Father, so that through us we could begin without fear, without defensiveness, that we could begin to love the world around us that is so broken with the love that we have been loved with. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.